3: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The first new treatment for Alzheimer's disease in nearly 20 years was just approved by the FDA. That means a lot to Arthena Kasten, an Alzheimer's patient and advocate. Here she is on the podcast Tradeoffs.
4: When I got to speak to the FDA, I asked for just a little more time. I want to be right here, enjoy the time I have with my husband and my
3: family. But the FDA's own advisory committee said the drug had not been proven effective, and one of its members called the FDA decision probably the worst drug approval decision in recent U.S. history. We'll dig into the controversy. Then at 9.40, an ode to the sounds that make the Bay Area what it is. That's all next on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Alzheimer's disease affects more than 6 million people in the U.S., and there have been no good existing treatment options. That led patient advocates to lobby the FDA to approve a new drug called Adjuhelm from the drug maker Biogen. Based on some evidence, it could slow the progression of the disease. The FDA FDA did that, and now faces an enormous backlash from scientists who say the drug will deliver marginal or even no benefits, and that it could have dangerous side effects. And at a cost of $56,000 annually per patient, Some members of the U.S. Senate are calling for an investigation into how the drug will affect the entire Medicare program. Joining us to discuss the controversy around the FDA's approval and share an update on Alzheimer's research, we have Dan Gornstein, host and executive producer of TradeOffs, a national health policy podcast. Welcome to the show, Dan.
5: Hey, thanks so much, Alexis, for having me.
3: And we also have Dr. Michael Gracious, professor, Department of Neurology at Stanford University School of Medicine and the medical director at the Stanford Center for Memory Disorders. Welcome, Dr. Gracious. Hi, Alexis. Thanks for having me and
6: thanks for covering this topic.
3: Thank you. Doctor, I want to start with you. Um, And because this is an important part of the drug controversy, I'd, I'd like you to describe the current consensus on how Alzheimer's disease actually causes cognitive decline.
6: Yeah, it's, it's, it's very complicated. We've been studying it for decades now. Um, you know, we, we do think, I think most people agree that amyloid plays an important early role in the sort of development of pathology. Um, how important amyloid is as a target later in the course once symptoms have already started is, is a very controversial topic. And, and what second... is amyloid?
3: Oh, Can you describe just what amyloid yeah, is? Yeah,
6: amyloid is, is a protein that, that we all have uh, that we think has a normal function, though we're not quite sure what, it, what that normal function is. Um, and in patients with Alzheimer's disease, when we when we look at the brain under a microscope, we see um, collections of this protein sort of lumped together in the brains. Um, those are called amyloid plaques. So it's it's been in the, you know, in our understanding of Alzheimer's for you know many decades now, uh, but we still don't have a great handle on. You know what the most toxic form of amyloid is, are the plaques really dangerous? There are a whole bunch of open questions related to that.
3: So we sort of know if you look at a healthy brain, we don't see these amyloid plaque buildups. We look at somebody's brain who's you know has severe cognitive decline and they have Alzheimer's and we see those plaque buildups, right?
6: Yeah, it's it's, it's not even quite that simple. I wish it were. When we look at, at people without any memory symptoms uh, over age 70, about one out of four, one out of uh, three even will have amyloid plaques in their brain, but they don't have any memory symptoms uh, at that point. Uh, But in all Alzheimer's patients, um, you know, we do see amyloid
3: plaques. Got it. And so that's why over the years, drug makers have attempted to target those plaques with different kinds of drugs going back a couple of decades. And what's what's happened up to this point, like before this most recent decision?
6: Yeah, that that's part of the frustration with with the FDA's uh, accelerated uh, approval in that we know we've got multiple examples now of drugs that were developed to target amyloid plaques um, and that miraculously actually worked and removed amyloid plaques from the brain, but unfortunately didn't have any impact on, on cognition or memory or thinking or any of the, the you know, patient outcomes that we care about. So there's a long record of, of drugs that can remove amyloid plaques from the brain, but that have no effect on uh, clinical outcomes.
3: And with this Biogen uh, new drug, they Took things through, you know, all these clinical phases and and trials, and again, were able to show uh, that plaque buildup could be could be removed. Um, but what evidence did they present uh, to the FDA that this was actually an efficacious drug?
6: Right. So the 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 sort of history of the aducanumab trials is is very messy and murky and and twisted. It's important to to point out right off the bat that. Uh, Biogen itself actually stopped both of the phase three uh, studies for aducanumab early based on what, what's called a futility analysis. So this is when pharmaceutical companies take an early look um, at, at sort of early results to try and get a sense if there's any, uh, you know, sign of a signal. And if there isn't, you know, out of the interest of saving money and, and protecting patients from a drug that doesn't work, they'll stop the study. And that's what uh, Biogen did actually in um, March of 2019. they, they, made an announcement that they were stopping the study because their their futility analyses showed that the drug wasn't working. Um, So so that was disappointing for everybody. Then in October of the same year of 2019, they came back and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, our futility analyses were wrong. We think it actually works. Um, And then they proceeded with this uh, FDA um, application. So right off the bat, there were two studies done. Um, Both were stopped early, about halfway uh, through the trials. Uh, And then they proceeded to to present the data from the two um, aborted studies, basically. One of them shows a very marginal but statistically significant effect on a clinical outcome measure. Uh, And the second one, equally sized, equally powered, showed absolutely no effect. And in fact, nominally, um, people on active treatment did a little, a tiny bit worse. Uh, And those are the, the clinical data that they presented to the FDA.
3: Got it. Dan, I'd like to bring you uh, into the discussion here. You've been following this closely and did a special uh, series on your your podcast, Tradeoffs, about um, this decision. And the the big question is, you know, so they, they present this data. The FDA has a rigorous process. It's one of the things um, that's actually special about the United States, as we've long had a Food and Drug Administration that um, put potential pharmaceuticals through, through the paces. Um, so... They conduct these studies. They bring it over to the FDA. What, what happens then? There's an advisory committee that meets to, to look over the science.
5: Yeah, that, that, that's right. Uh, there was an advisory committee, uh, independent review, and they voted 10 to nothing to reject this drug. I mean, really, they were just said, you know, we, we, we talked with one member of, the, of that panel and he told us. He said, look, this is not a tough call. And in in fact, uh, Mike uh, co-wrote an op-ed in the New York Times with this panel member. And, you know, the scientists here whose job it is, is to really evaluate the efficacy here. Will this actually help people? We're really clear. No, not a close call. Hmm.
3: So what's going on during this period outside the science? Like who's who's talking to the FDA aside from this advisory committee?
5: Well, as you can imagine, I mean, uh, look, you know, 6 million Americans have Alzheimer's. This is a major, devastating, terrible disease. Uh, There's not been a, a significant treatment in nearly 20 years to hit the market. And patient advocacy groups like the Alzheimer's Association were pushing very, very hard for this because they see... This is something to hang their hats on. And uh, they really, they went to the FDA. they, They, there was a lot of impassioned testimony calling for this. And look, I think when we have this conversation, we all have to be honest about this, right? Like Alzheimer's truly is a terrible condition. And all of us would like to see treatment here that would really make a real difference for people and their families.
3: Yeah. We're talking about the FDA approval of the drug aducanumab, also known by its brand name Adjahelm, with Dan Gornstein, host and executive producer of Trade Offs, a national healthcare policy podcast, and Dr. Michael Gracious, professor, Department of Neurology at Stanford University School of Medicine. And Dr. Gracious, I want to um, come back to you. The FDA does did make a ruling, and in fact, they approved the drug um, for use, and they approved it quite broadly. Um, what was the rationale that they used for the approval?
6: Yeah, so there's, there's a mechanism at the FDA, um, accelerated approval, where, you know, if there's unmet need, um, if it's going to take a long time to get good clinical data, they will consider approving things um, based on a surrogate uh, or sort of a stand-in marker of the illness. So this works really well in uh, diseases like HIV-AIDS, for example, where we can look at viral load, something that tracks very closely with how people do over time people use the example of cholesterol levels for uh, coronary artery disease or stroke as another sort of surrogate marker. The problem here is that the FDA used amyloid plaque as the surrogate marker for Alzheimer's disease. And as I mentioned earlier, we already know quite well uh, from big studies over the last 20 years that removing amyloid plaque isn't associated with any improvement um, in cognition. So It was sort of shocking. I mean, I think it took a lot of us a few hours for that to settle in. It would have been bad enough for them to approve it on the clinical data because uh, as Dan pointed out, the FDA advisory committee was very firmly uh, opposed to approval on clinical efficacy. Um, But it was at some level even more shocking that they approved it based on its ability to remove amyloid plaque. To be clear, it does remove amyloid plaque, but there's never been an association in prior studies or uh, importantly in, in the current studies with aducanumab itself. Um, to show that removing amyloid plaque helps
3: with uh, cognition and clinical outcomes. Dan, how unusual was this decision by the FDA? Oh,
5: this was a really, there's a phrase I use sometimes called freaky deaky. I mean, this was sort of like freaky deaky, man. I mean, I think people were really taken aback, jaw dropping. And it wasn't just the decision in this sense that, oh, is the FDA even following the science? But it was compounded by Biogen then coming in and slapping a $56,000 price tag on this drug. So, look, I mean, Biogen studied this as um, something that could be used for people with mild or early onset Alzheimer's. The FDA gives a wide approval, like this can apply to lots of people, not just people with mild problems, but all kinds of people. So we're potentially talking about 6 million folks. And then you have Biogen come in and put this price tag on it of $56,000 a year when you had uh, an independent uh, drug price watchdog that said this drug really should be somewhere between $2,500 and $8,300. And it just was a one-two stunning kind of combo here. Yeah.
3: After the break, we're going to talk about more about the implications of this decision by the FDA to approve a new Alzheimer's drug, aducanumab, also known as Aduhelm. And if you, we'd like to hear from you. If you have Alzheimer's, or you care for somebody who does, what do you think about the FDA approval of this new drug? How are you navigating this complex science and emotional terrain? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We are at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the FDA approval of the first new Alzheimer's drug in 20 years and the controversy surrounding it. Uh, joining us are Dan Gornstein, host, executive producer of Tradeoffs, a national health policy podcast, Dr. Michael Gracious, a professor at Stanford in the Department of Neurology. And I want to bring in another voice into the conversation. Libby Britton is the founder of Quilt, a startup to serve family caregivers And someone who has a sort of personal experience with being a caregiver, uh, with someone who is suffering from cognitive decline. Uh, Thanks for coming on, Libby.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
3: So why don't you tell us, just tell us what your experience has been so far of trying to navigate having, um, as I understand it, your mother um, begin to experience problems with her memory.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So my perspective is um, mainly one um, of a family caregiver. I've cared for my mom, who, as you said, has early onset Alzheimer's disease for about five years now. Um, And um, I also have the perspective of a professional who's now actually building a company um, to build products for other family caregivers like me.
3: And um, how how do you go about navigating this terrain? Obviously, you know, your your mom starts to experience this problem. You start looking into the various treatments that might be available. Um, what did you find?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, the big thing about family caregiving is that it can be incredibly overwhelming. It's a really hard job. It comes with a lot of stress and a lot of uncertainty, especially when you're like I am and like many other people are caring for someone who has dementia, where there aren't a lot of great treatment options once you're sort of moving down the road to figuring out what you want to do about this illness once you've figured out that you have it. Um, So it's a really long road. You have to ask a lot of really good questions of a lot of different physicians. um, And ultimately, you want to do a good job, right? Um, One of the main feelings I have had throughout this whole experience is so much pressure to try to make the right Choice for my mom, and I know other family caregivers who are listening now feel exactly the same way. They want to make the right choices for the person that they love, whether it's an aging parent or a spouse or a grandparent even or a friend. Um, but they need really good and really clear information to do that. And thinking back on my experience caring for my mom, that's almost been one of the hardest parts is trying to figure out, um, you know, what what choices should I be making and what what should be you know really good inputs to those decisions for me. Yeah.
3: I mean, one of the trickiest things is that, you know, this is one of the reasons why the FDA exists so that individual caregivers or or doctors or, or anybody else doesn't have to actually consider the evidence all on their own. They can say like, OK, well, I know that the FDA would would make a good decision here. Um, and I want to bring you in, Dan. Thank you, Libby, so much for sharing your experience with us. I want to bring in Dan to, to talk about the possible effects of this decision on the uh, the trust in the FDA.
5: Yeah. No, Alexis, thanks for that question. I, you know, we talked to a doctor uh, actually based in, in the Bay area and he told us, you know, I used to just like the FDA, the stamp of approval. Like, I mean, really like in some ways the FDA is this, and you alluded to this in your open, the FDA is kind of like the c- crown jewel of drug regulators around the world where the envy uh, of of so many. And I think this decision by the FDA has really, again, I know I've used this expression, but raised these eyebrows like, hey, what's going on at the FDA? And one of the things that's been very interesting to see that's highly unusual is that just this week, the FDA has released 80 pages of internal documents to, to sort of, describe what they're doing, how they're thinking about this decision, why they made the decision. Uh, they wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post defending their decision. I mean, these are things that you, do, you don't typically see from the FDA. And one other piece about this that I think is interesting that sort of puts Alzheimer's to the side and is, is bigger than just this Alzheimer's drug is that I think what we see in this approval, at least based on our reporting so far, is that the FDA is kind of really signaling a kind of a paradigm shift here, that it's better to try something that might work rather than wait for something that does work. And the waiting for something that does work is kind of how the FDA used to be. And now we're seeing at least with certain types of drugs, um, more willingness to kind of like, Give things a shot. Mm-hmm.
3: Libby, um, having heard this discussion and read what you've read about this drug, are you considering um, pursuing this drug for, for your own mother?
2: So I'm not personally. I want to just lead with saying that this is a really personal decision for every family. And um, there uh, you know, family caregivers have a, a really impossible job in a lot of days of sort of squaring their own family's preferences and their. Personal preferences with information from the medical community about how they should move forward and how they should take care of someone that they love, and sort of talk personally. I'm not going to pursue this for my mom. She um, made her wishes very clear um, at the early stages of her illness, and those wishes were that she personally does not want any sort of life-extending um, uh, medication or interventions um, if she were to have an illness like uh, dementia, which which she does. So. Um, for me and for us i don't think it's the right choice for another family it may be
3: thanks again thanks so much libby and we will talk to you again soon we do want to mention um that we did invite the alzheimer's association and tried to find um an an advocate of this to come on the show and they were we weren't able to do that um we now let's go to the phone lines we've got um sarah in castro valley welcome to the show
4: Hi, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I called in because um, I and my family, we've been living with Alzheimer's. My mother, in fact, is the one who has been sick this whole time. And we have been living with this in our family for eight years at this point. My mom has been in, quote unquote, end stage Alzheimer's for a year and a half at this point and on hospice that entire time. Um, And when I heard about uh, the FDA approval of this medication and uh, at first, of course, I was like, wow, that's fantastic. There's something. And then the more I heard about it, um, the more furious I got (laughs) about it, because I think that um, at this point, obvious, I think it would be far too late for my mom to have anything to help her at this point regardless of the medication. But I think that this medication, um, and I think back to when we were in the early days of trying to figure out what was going on for my mom um, and just desperate for a cure, desperate for something that would help. Um, this, this could have given us a lot of hope, but it sounds like it's just false hope. And when you add the price tag on top of it, it's just infuriating to me that this was allowed to happen.
3: Thank you so much, Sarah, and I'm sorry to hear about your parents. It's, it's
4: just... And thank you, though, for talking about this on the air because I think a lot of people really don't understand what Alzheimer's is, what it looks like, and the long-term impact it has on the people who love the person with Alzheimer's. Um, so, again, thank you for raising awareness of the issue.
3: Absolutely. Thank you for, thank you for sharing. I, I want to talk about one of those other impacts, and, of course, it's you know, in comparison to dealing with the cognitive decline of our loved ones, it's hard to talk about the sort of monetary aspects. Um, Dan, I, I want to ask you about this cost of fifty-six thousand dollars a year—not just sort of for to, for individual people and families, but also for sort of the effect on the broader healthcare system. Like, what what what, what could this really do to to Medicare? Yeah. So um, this
5: could be, you know, from for a lot of years, Alexis, as you know, there's been this question, should Medicare be allowed to negotiate drug prices? And the effect of this price tag of this drug really, I think, is forward, it's, it's fueling this conversation. Because when you project out which is, which is really significant, right? Like this drug has been around for 19 days and this drug single-handedly perhaps is responsible for like reinvigorating this rigorous debate. Should we allow Medicare to uh, directly negotiate drug prices? Which is, it would be a huge paradigm shift and something that the pharmaceutical industry has fought forever. But like the reason it has played such a significant role in just less than three weeks is because when you do the numbers and the Kaiser Family Foundation uh, came out with an estimate, they said they uh, assumed about 500,000 people might take it. That would end up costing $29 billion a year in new spending. Now that's just for the drug. And to put $29 billion in context, the New York Times had a great article out earlier this week saying that that is more than the federal government spends on NASA every year. And again, this is one drug of questionable efficacy.
3: Wow. And that was... With the assumption of five hundred thousand people taking the drug, when we know that the the overall total addressable market, as it might have been, might be called in, in their presentations, would be somewhere between two and six million people, something like that.
5: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Biogen estimated it's about one to two million people are good candidates for the drug. That's right, and so that could add up to more than a hundred billion dollars. Wow! A
3: couple of uh, comments from from listeners. Mike writes, um, my mom died of Alzheimer's related conditions last year. From families' perspectives, they likely view the risk of any side effects or ill effects as worth it when compared to the disease playing out. The scientists are correct in opposing this from a clinical outcome perspective. The perspectives of families regarding risk are also understandable. This circumstance demonstrates the fact that with Alzheimer's, there's currently no clear best outcome. Dr. Gracious, um, I, I want to ask you about – I'm actually stealing one of Dan's questions from his excellent podcast, which is what would you do with $56,000 to care for Alzheimer's patients if it didn't go towards this drug, like if you were able to take that money and put it towards other things?
6: Yeah, that's a great uh, question, Alexis. Let me just – if I might comment um, for the the concerns we heard from Libby and from the caller, Sarah, about you know wanting to make the right decision – One of the main reasons, candidly, that I wanted to come on the show today is for people to hear uh, a specialist tell them that it's okay not to use this drug because many of us really don't think it works. And so there's going to be pressure on caregivers and family members to get patients on this drug. You've got to do something. It's, It's actually probably safer not to put them on the drug. And so I think that's okay. But to your question about you know, what we could do with $56,000, I think that's better asked if someone like Libby, I mean, there's a lot of lost income, people are trying to, you know, maintain their own careers while, while caring essentially 24 hours a day for a loved one with Alzheimer's disease. Paid caregiving help is very expensive, but it's also incredibly helpful, it provides family caregivers with a respite, which many of them, you know, badly need for, for mental health and, and even physical health. Um, so, yeah, that
3: $56,000 could go uh, a long way for, for
6: families and caregivers.
3: I want to take another call from Carrie in San Jose. Welcome to the show.
4: Hi. Good morning. I wanted to ask the doctor if he's familiar with a new PET scan-based study that showed that the most commonly prescribed category of um, um, cholesterol medications actually more than doubles the risk of Alzheimer's and other dementias.
3: Dr. Gracious.
6: Yeah, there's there's a fairly long history about, you know, the role of cholesterol medication statins in particular in in Alzheimer's disease. Um, There are a lot of studies kind of pointing in, in both directions, they might be helpful, they may cause some memory trouble on balance, our current recommendations are that if you need a statin for lowering your cholesterol because you have a high risk of coronary artery disease or stroke, you should be on a, a statin. We don't recommend people coming off statins. So there are, there are, um, as a, the listener points out, uh, studies suggesting that maybe it's not um, helpful in Alzheimer's disease, but on balance, the data um, are really pretty mixed. And we think that if you need uh, cholesterol medication for these other reasons like coronary artery disease or stroke, you should definitely stay on them.
3: I want to bring in a couple other listener uh, comments. Jonathan writes, I've had two close family members die of Alzheimer's, a horrible end to be sure. Biogen is a corporation that has the mission of making money, so I hope that no one buys this overpriced and ineffective drug. And it simply isn't prescribed so that they lose some money, which will be an important lesson in their journey to make it. Uh, Gretchen, let's bring you on from Berkeley.
4: Hi. My husband died from Alzheimer's in November after having it for 15 years. And at the end, we were paying over $100,000 for his care because he had to be uh, put in a care home. It er- enrages me that the government would consider spending $56,000 a year on a drug that's unlikely to help anybody and not give any assistance at all to families that desperately, desperately need the kind of help that end-stage Alzheimer requires.
3: Thank you, Gretchen. I'm sorry to hear about your husband. Um, Dr. Gracious, is there any reason to believe that one of the arguments that advocates have made for this drug, which is that by approving this drug, better drugs will come down the line? uh, One neurologist wrote in the journal Stat. I believe that the best way to put the approval of aducanumab into perspective is to see it as just the beginning of a pipeline of therapies that target the underlying biology of brain disease. Is is there any merit to that argument?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really flawed argument. I'm, you know, putting my my clinician's hat aside and and think about this from a scientific perspective, I think approval of aducanumab is really going to hurt our capacity to develop and find new drugs, uh, you know, that actually work. So we've sort of accepted the illusion uh, of efficacy for uh, actual efficacy. You can imagine if you know 1 million or 2 million people are taking this antibody infusion, which we haven't talked much about the side effects, but one out of three people get brain swelling when they take this medicine, it's gonna be incredibly hard to run new clinical trials. First of all, finding people that are willing not to be on aducanumab, which is not FDA approved, so they assume it works. Um, and encouraging them to enroll in these experimental trials, which invariably, you know, have a, a placebo arm as well. So I think, you know, it's definitely going to hurt clinical trial work in the next five years. Um, and, you know, if anything comes out of it in terms of other drugs, it's going to be like, for example, if I were uh, at Pfizer, and I had this drug um that was, uh, you know, the program was canceled several years ago, because it didn't work clinically. But it uh, as well as other uh, amyloid antibody drugs, did clear amyloid plaque out of the brain. And so, you know, one question is, are those drug companies going to want to seek approval for these moribunds uh, antibodies that didn't work clinically, but that did clear amyloid? So, yeah, I think this notion that this is going to herald a new, you know,
3: dawn for clinical trial um, drug development in Alzheimer's is really um, far off the mark. And in fact, I think at least one drug cr- uh, company already has begun to dust off um one of those drugs um we have another question from a listener david which is you know the the amyloid treatments were seen as being very promising um and that now it's not so clear that they're that they're actually going to work dr gracious what other uh possible uh, methods of combating alzheimer's might be on the horizon Right, so, I mean, I should start by saying, I'm not sure this, you know that that we can
6: completely throw in the towel on on amyloid uh, targeting therapies. one one big lingering question is maybe, you know we're just not starting the treatment early enough. We know that people can have amyloid in their brain for five years or ten years even before they get symptoms. Almost all our trials are in people that are already symptomatic, So we know the Alzheimer's, or I'm sorry, the amyloid has been in place for five or ten years. So, you know things aren't looking rosy for the amyloid uh, sort of cascade hypothesis and amyloid is a drug target, but I don't think we're we're completely you know finished there. There are uh, a number of other really compelling targets. So tau is another protein that builds up in the brain uh, of a patient with Alzheimer's disease, and there are ongoing studies of anti-tau antibodies right now. Other approaches to you know remove tau um, or to make tau less likely to to clump together. ApoE is a um, really strong genetic risk factor, ApoE4, uh, for Alzheimer's disease. And there's a lot of biology around ApoE um, that, that's turning up important potential uh, targets mm-hmm. and, and good drug candidates. So there, there, there are a lot of options out there still,
3: uh, many very promising, and I think we need to, to keep pursuing those. Great. Thank you very much. We've been talking about FDA approval of the drug at a helm with Dr. Michael Gracious, department of neurology at stanford university school of medicine and dan gorstein hosts uh, an executive producer of the excellent national health policy podcast trade-offs thanks for joining us we'll have more on bay area sounds the sounds that make this place sound like home after the break